This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Ngunnawal country, Canberra. It's the first parliamentary sitting day for 2023, and the government has some big plans, like reforming Medicare, finalising a nuclear submarine deal, cutting emissions from heavy polluters, and addressing cost-of-living pressures. The referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament will also dominate debate. Many advocates, including the Prime Minister, would prefer that politics was left out of it, but as Tom Lowry reports, that wish is looking increasingly unlikely. After a long summer break, the politicians are back in Canberra. Very pleased to be back. Lots to do. Of course, it's always been great to be here representing the people of Hinkley. And while there is plenty on the government's agenda, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, is clear that one issue will define 2023. I am very pleased to be back and uh, looking forward to the parliamentary sitting, but the year of the year of the voice, actually. The government's planned referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament dominated political discussion over the summer break. The Prime Minister has tried to sharpen his message on what exactly is being asked of Australians. The 2023 referendum is about two things, recognition and consultation. But those questioning or flat out opposing the voice have also grown louder too. While the Nationals remain firmly opposed, the Liberals are still weighing up their position. Liberal frontbencher Jonathan Dunningham says the party won't be making a call until its demands for more detail are met. When we have that detail, we'll be able to come to a position as a party room and move forward from there. The Greens too are yet to form a final position on the voice. The party's First Nations spokesperson, Lydia Thorpe, has been openly critical of the voice as she pushes instead for a treaty. The Greens spent much of last week on a retreat together, but party leader Adam Bant says there is more work to be done before the matter is settled. We've been very clear that we want to see action on all elements of the statement from the heart. It's possible the party might opt to support the voice while allowing Senator Thorpe to continue opposing it. Mr Bant says in that circumstance, he'd like Senator Thorpe to continue on in her portfolio. She's got the right to vote differently. Uh, it would be my uh, preference that she continues as our First Nations spokesperson, as the leader. That's something that uh, I will get to decide. Linda Burney is holding out hope both parties will wind up getting behind the Yes campaign. I am very hopeful that uh, both the Liberals and the Greens will come on board. Um, I can't see any reason why they wouldn't. Asked if it would be damaging to have the Liberals in particular campaigning against The Voice, she says the real risk lies in their camp. I think it would be more damaging for the Liberal Party to campaign against The Voice, quite frankly. The Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, ending that report from Tom Lowry. A Four Corners investigations found an alarmingly high number of health professionals are still allowed to practice despite having sexual misconduct findings against them. Six-month examinations discovered more than 160 health practitioners are still registered even though they've been proven guilty of sexual misconduct. Emily Baker reports, and a warning, this story contains some graphic details. A doctor's office should be a safe space, where the pledge to do no harm is honoured. The whole dynamic of the patient-doctor relationship is one entirely based on trust. When Tom Monigle went to his first consult with Melbourne neurologist Dr Andrew Churchyard, he thought he'd received the care he needed. I sort of felt initially like, this guy really does know his stuff, like this, he seems like an expert. He was seeking treatment for Tourette's syndrome, but during the examination... 
Dr Churchyard asked Tom to strip naked and proceeded to touch his genitals. I think it lasted about five minutes that he was sort of touching, prodding, seemed like he was fondling. Tom's mother, Sharon, a GP, remembers feeling confused. I thought, well, how could it be a sexual assault? Tom was a law student, both his parents are doctors. I'm sitting in the waiting room. This was a, you know, a renowned neurologist who'd come recommended. When it happened again at a subsequent appointment, the family reported the abuse to the health regulator, APRA, and the police. Dr Churchyard took his own life before facing trial. More than 50 former patients eventually settled with Churchyard's estate. Four Corners has trawled through more than 1,000 documents and found 36 health professionals across the country with multiple sexual misconduct complaints against them still registered to practice. We asked APRA CEO Martin Fletcher about practitioners with multiple complaints. I think there'd be a view among some in the community that there, uh, you know, there is certain conduct uh, that should be incompatible with ever being able to be registered again as a health practitioner. APRA handles complaints about health professionals, along with independent bodies in New South Wales and Queensland. These regulators can only recommend action to professional boards, and only administrative tribunals can remove a practitioner's right to practice. But those doctors can be reinstated, usually by their boards. And everywhere but New South Wales, the reasons are secret. University of Technology professor Jenny Milbank thinks that should change. Practitioners who are so unsafe or what they've done is so very serious that they've been deregistered, when they come back into practice in Australia, everywhere except New South Wales, we don't know what reasons there are that the regulator has decided that they're now safe enough to come back. Changing that means changing the law. For the first time, APRA is publicly endorsing that amendment. I'm supportive of measures that bring greater transparency into, into regulation because I think that is a good thing. And that's Martin Fletcher, the Chief Executive of the Health Regulator APRA, ending Emily Baker's report. And you can see Emily's investigation on Four Corners tonight at 8.30 on ABC TV. And if this story has raised concerns for you or anyone you know, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Disgraced former Governor-General and Archbishop of Brisbane, Peter Hollingworth, faces the prospect of being defrocked over his failure to stamp out pedophiles in the church. After five years of waiting, abuse survivors are hoping a tribunal hearing will finally deal with their complaints against the senior Anglican figure. Richard Willingham prepared this report. I'm not joking, this is probably the longest-running case of child abuse in the world. It's a staggering claim, but it's one that veteran survivor advocate and child protection expert Chris Goddard firmly believes. It not only is the longest case, but it's also the most egregious public humiliation of a victim that, that I've ever seen. He's talking about Beth Heinrich, who was sexually abused as a teenager by Anglican priest Donald Sherman in the 1950s. Despite complaints of the church, nothing was done. Her trauma was exacerbated in 2002, when the then Governor-General Peter Hollingworth told Australian Story this. There was no suggestion of rape or anything like that. Um, quite the contrary. Uh, my information is that it was rather the other way around. You know, I was a child, a minor. You know, how dare he do that? And he was well aware of the circumstances. Beth Heinrich is one of a number of abuse survivors who want the former Archbishop to be defrocked. She says she's still suffering trauma at the hands of the church due to its lack of action. He's not a fit person. He's not a fit character to have holy orders. 
that complaints were made more than five years ago to the Anglican Diocese of Melbourne. Today, a hearing will be finally held, but some participants are sceptical after other scheduled hearings in the past few years were cancelled at the last minute. Oh, well, I believe the delays are on purpose, of course. You know, hoping that myself and anyone else who's complained will lose interest or get so distressed and worn out that they're not willing to do anything anymore. Or, on the other hand, they could be hoping for Peter Hollingworth to, to die so they can't do anything. In 2003, Dr Hollingworth was forced to resign as Governor-General over a series of scandals during his tenure as Archbishop of Brisbane regarding his response to sex abuse claims, which included allowing a pedophile priest to work through to retirement. Years later, the Royal Commission into Institutional Abuse slammed Dr Hollingworth's decision to let a priest who admitted abusing boys keep working, labelling it a serious error of judgement. There were also cases of abuse at a Toowoomba Anglican school. Joy Connolly, a local psychologist, raised the issue with a then-Archbishop in the 1990s and was aghast with his response that he was tired and could not do anything. He was stressed he needed a holiday. Well, so did those kids. They needed to be allowed to grow up and not have that trauma. Dr Hollingworth's office did not respond to a request for comment, while an Anglican spokesman said... The complaint process regarding Bishop Hollingworth is properly entirely independent of the Diocese of Melbourne. The Diocese has had no influence on the investigation and the Archbishop cannot comment on the process. The spokesman said Dr Hollingworth has a limited permission to officiate in the Diocese. If a finding is made against him, that will be revisited accordingly. Richard Willingham reporting. Many economists are forecasting another increase in official interest rates when the Reserve Bank Board meets tomorrow, and some expect it'll keep jacking up rates this year to control inflation. With variable rates set to hit 7% or more, it's hard news for borrowers currently struggling with repayments, and it's also tough for young Australians trying to break into the property market who'll find it takes far longer to pay off a loan than it has for previous generations. Nassim Kadem reports. When single mum Kerry Boylett wanted to buy a home in 1995, her interest rate was just 19%. I remember once I had the electricity cut off for three days. Kerry's upsized to a home in Sydney that's now worth far more than what houses were in the mid-90s. She says baby boomers, those born between 1946 to 1964, sacrificed to make ends meet and thinks millennials need to do the same. They want, you know, the latest mobile phone, the latest iPad, they want a nice car, they want to go on holidays, they still want to go out to restaurants. If they look at curtailing all of that, they would be able to afford to get something. The Grattan Institute's program director, Brendan Coates, says because of sky-high interest rates of 17% or more in the late 1980s and early 1990s, baby boomer first-home buyers found it harder at the start of their mortgage than millennials do now. So Australians who have borrowed a, to buy a home recently, they're paying roughly 33% of their income to service that mortgage today. Uh, whereas boomers back in the day, if they just recently bought, were paying up to 40% of their income to service the average loan um, to buy the average house. But he says the path to owning your own home is more difficult now than it ever was because the loans people are taking on are so much bigger. And once you account for how much people are going to be paying over the life of their loan, they'll certainly be paying more as millennials today than either baby boomers in 1990 or Gen Xs that probably bought in the mid-2000s. 
Dr Peter Chula previously worked at the Reserve Bank and he's now the Chief Economist at the Centre for Independent Studies. He agrees that it's become harder for millennials to pay off their home loans than it was for boomers. They're squeezed in two ways. While interest rates are high, they also have huge prices and rents are also very high. So overall, housing affordability is one of the biggest social problems Australia is facing. Dr Tulip says with inflation now close to 8%, there's a high chance the Reserve Bank will lift the cash rate to about 4%, which would mean variable rates of about 7% by mid-year. Despite the struggle to get a home loan, 26-year-old Oliver Cooksey broke into the housing market in July. He made sacrifices to save a deposit and locked in a fixed rate of just over 4% for four years. Cut your costs where you can, just go through your financial statements and assess do you need to buy this and what do you actually need. And maybe don't go out and buy that new car if you don't need it, if your car's perfectly working fine. And that will help you in terms of having that money aside to make your repayments when you do move into the housing market. New homeowner Oliver Cooksey ending that report by Nassim Kadem. New South Wales government's project to alter the Menindee Lakes lacked rigorous scientific evidence, according to a report published in the International Scientific Journal today. It's revealed a lack of transparency in the decision-making process behind sending water downriver during periods of drought. Locals aren't surprised, saying they're frustrated by the lack of community consultation. Bill Orman reports. water flowing into a full Lake Menindee. But several years ago it was dry and could have remained that way if a plan by the state government was implemented, who in an attempt to save water were considering keeping it elsewhere. I guess we've known for some time that water savings has been on the agenda for Menindee Lakes with the argument that a lot of water is being lost to evaporation. Professor Richard Kingsford is the Director for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales. He's part of a group of researchers who published a paper in the International Scientific Journal Ecology and Society. Mr Kingsford says his accompanying report highlights how the decision-making process to drain lakes Kondilla and Menindee lacked rigorous evidence and had little consideration for the environmental impact. There was lots of research out there which seemed to be ignored. And on top of that, very little public information on where the numbers were coming from in terms of water saving. For some of those who live on the shores of Lake Menindee, like president of the Darling River Action Group, Ross Ledra, the findings weren't a shock. A surprise? No, no. It was just satisfaction that everyone from all these reports and our group and others all come to the same conclusions. A lack of community consultation between locals, including traditional owners by Water New South Wales, was also outlined heavily as an issue to fix. Even though they ticked the box on consultation, we don't believe it was consultation at all. It was just dictatorship. Farmer Rachel Strawn lives downriver north of Wentworth and was the project's stakeholder advisory group vice chair. There's just the frustration of the arrogance of ignoring the, the local knowledge on the ground. That's it, just flabbergasting. It's beyond belief. In a statement, New South Wales Water Minister Kevin Anderson says the government always considers community consultation to be crucial when it comes to decisions impacting the Murray-Darling Basin. Mr Anderson said the Ministerial Council agreed to rescope the project in 2021, which is now part of the Better Barker program.
Although many locals living along the Darling don't believe much has changed since the Better Barker program was unveiled. They'd like to see a serious commitment to community consultation, as well as a step away from the focus put into preventing slow evaporation from the lakes. It's a sentiment shared by one of the paper's authors, Richard Kingsford. We're losing vast amounts of water to evaporation in that very dry climate. We have to get used to that. This is natural, that water comes into these lakes. There are natural lakes on the Paru, for example, other parts of the Darling, where they produce an environmental benefit. And it's the drying of those lakes over time, gradually, that's so important for many of those plants and animals. That's Professor Richard Kingsford from the University of New South Wales, ending that report by Bill Orman. The US Navy is trying to find debris from the suspected Chinese spy balloon that was shot down over the weekend by a US fighter jet. Search is happening off the coast of South Carolina. The balloon was first detected in US airspace a week ago. Republicans say the president was too slow to give the order to destroy it. North America correspondent Barbara Miller reports. After the bursting of the suspected spy balloon, now the wash-up. The president failed on this one. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu among the Republicans using the Sunday talk shows to lambast President Biden for not acting sooner. This is all about China poking at us. This is all about China testing the American resolve, whether it's with TikTok or the balloon or whatever the thing is going to be next month. They know that that, uh, tensions are escalating and they want to see what kind of leadership we have. And no, the president should have taken action a lot sooner and got it done. Here's House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner speaking to NBC's Meet the Press. This should never have been allowed to enter the United States, and it never should have been allowed to complete its mission. And on ABC's This Week, Florida Senator Marco Rubio said what was missing was transparency. I recognize that you shoot something out of the sky that's the, si- that's the size of three buses and it lands in the wrong place. It could hurt, harm, kill people or damage infrastructure. But by the same token, I think that if that was the case, then I think it really would have been helpful for the president of the United States to get on national television and explain to the American people, this is what we're dealing with, this is what I'm going to do about it, and uh, and this is why I haven't done it yet. None of that happened. The balloon was shot down at between 60 and 65,000 feet by a single missile from an F-22 from Langley Air Force Base, Virginia. Its remnants fell into the Atlantic Ocean approximately 10 kilometres off the coast of South Carolina. It it sounds simple. Uh, I I suppose uh, if, if if you don't think about it for more than a second. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg defended the president's actions. This thing was above American airspace in terms of where most of the uh, aircraft fly. This thing is larger than a bus when they did shoot it down. The debris field was about seven miles. And so the concern, of course, is how do you do it in a way that absolutely minimizes the danger to American lives on the ground? The waters where the balloon came down are only about 15 meters deep. And the Pentagon says that should make the recovery fairly easy. Residents in coastal areas are being told to contact authorities if anything washes up on shore. President Biden has been at Camp David over the weekend working on his State of the Union address to be delivered in two days' time. The paragraphs on China, no doubt, being hurriedly rewritten. This is Barbara Miller in Washington reporting for AM. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. 
By now, most of us will be feeling the pinch from rising costs and housing pressures. So what's the government going to do to help us? Today, 7.30's chief political correspondent, Laura Tingle, on the most pressing issue for Anthony Albanese as Parliament returns. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.